Well, little bit by little bit. Okay, I'm going to go through the um, chapter and I'm going to type as you talk. So, um, but I'll also record in case I need it as a backup. Yeah. Um, okay, so where and when were you born? Uh, March 8th, 1940, Kansas City, Missouri. And that makes you uh, a Taurus? No, Pisces. Pisces. Um, so, no bull. pardon? No bull. <laughs> no bull. <laughs> so I think of Pisces as being sensitive, um, maybe sometimes indecisive. Um, Not indecisive. Uh, very susceptible. <clears throat> you know, we we hear something and it sounds really good. And we go with it. We we have we're less of here's my we're not a trumper, you know. We're not. This is the only way it is. And uh, sometimes for me, I even get off off track because I really had this belief system set up, and uh, then somebody shares something else that distorts that, and I'm a Pisces, you know. I flow. I flow with it. So I, I don't see it as indecisive. Okay. Um, and then what was your education and career path? Uh, BS. <laughs> in what? Uh, bullshit in marketing and with an English minor. Where, and that, that was in, in um, Kansas Baker University, Baldwin City, Kansas, about 15 miles from KU, where we partied a lot. <laughs> Our school, it was, it was Methodist uh, and a progressive Methodist of about under a thousand students, still under a thousand, basically 50-50 men and women and 80% fraternity and sorority. So very, very social. What, what house were you in? Kappa Sig. I was a Tridel. Were you? I married a Tridel. <laughs> uh oh, too bad. <laughs> I know, we got a divorce. Yeah. Well, uh, that, was, that was during the time where um, women went to college like Wesley and Mills to get an MRS degree. Remember that? Well, I never heard that, but I've other people have heard it. Well, and uh, did you ever see uh, oh, Mad Smiling Madonna, the movie with Julia? Oh, you ought to see that. She's an art teacher at Wellesley, and and really brings up. And the movie was out in two thousand three, but really brings up how women are being raised in education. And Mills was the same way back then. Um, and, um, and I see that as a major shift in um, women, girls being brought up on how to be a girl. It was that way for years and years and years. And all of a sudden in the last 50 years, 
they made this total social change, which I'm hoping we do as men. And Bly hasn't helped that. Uh, and we are slowly progressing into making that major shift and not being that tough, big boys don't cry way of how to be a man and teaching our boys, but doing it now and shifting that. And we're getting there, but uh, with Trump and all that kind of crap, it's made it more difficult. Um, I interviewed two men for the book in their early 20s, and they, they heard the same thing in middle school. Don't cry, don't be a sissy, don't be gay, don't be like a girl. So they heard the same thing. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm just hoping that enough of us, they, those two guys, and enough of us, and, and did you uh, get um, Bill Kalf? Did you interview him? No, but I interviewed um, uh, Boyson, who is the communication director for uh, the Mankind Project. Did you try to do Cal? He's, no. He is phenomenal. And, um, and he took my work and, would, and his, he met his wife through my work and, um, at Burning Man. Uh, but uh, he, he was one of the three founders. I know. And he was more the therapeutic and he and his wife now do uh, tribal work with getting communities of women and men together and working through stuff and really doing support like we sort of tried to do with uh, women and men's task group, you know, but I, I, you may be done with your book, but no. I, think, I think he is one of the best voices he is a, I think it's an, antithetical to uh, Sterling. Who's Sterling? Oh, okay. Justin Sterling? I don't know who that is. You don't know him? Oh my <laughs> God. Uh, he, Men, Sex, and Power is his work. And basically, if you looked at any talk shows 10 years ago, and men were on it, and they'd go, hoo, 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 hoo. That was his men. What does hoo 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 mean? The gorilla. <laughs> and, and they do that on uh, Donahue and on Oprah and Jesse Raphael. Uh, but uh, he is one of the, the worst of the worst. He teaches women. He's got women sex and power too. And he's teaches women to be subservient to men if you really want to, to uh, be successful. So, uh, and he's a biggie. I would not allow his book on my website. I've got 6,000 books on my website. And he and Stoltenberg are the two that I would not allow on my website. I, I included John in the book. I think he, 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 he never, he's a feminist. Well, he's a, He's a misogynist, he's a masculinist. Whatever a misogynist is from being a man. His you mean book, he, he puts down men. Like he wrote no. that book, I don't, refusing, I don't want to be a man. Refusing to be a man. And he lived with 
Andrea Dworkin. They were married. Her, were they married? 34 years. Oh, wow. Is she still alive? No. No, I didn't think so. No, he's married to a man now. Okay, well, that feels right. I think that's where he always was. Well, he he says that he 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 realized he was gay as in middle school, but he married a woman and then he married another woman and then now he's with a man. Yeah. Well. Um, and then why did you fall in your in love with your wife? What attracted you to her? <laughs> uh, I didn't. She got pregnant. Yeah. When I was in my senior year in college, and uh, she was going for her, she was Tridel, and she was going for her MRS degree, and was in school for a year, and we met uh, in that year, and um, um, let's see. I, I, um, and she left school to start earning money. And on Valentine's Day, we met up, uh, or within a couple of days, and I got her pregnant. In one, in one encounter? One, well, no, we'd had sex. Uh, but I had never, I've been a devout, um, Love the, when you're not with the one you love, love the one you're with. <laughs> uh, uh, Non-monogamous. I've never believed in monogamy. And, uh, but I got her pregnant and that was the appropriate thing to do. From my, my uncle was president of the Federal Reserve and my grandfather was the head chemist at Procter & Gamble. And so I was raised in that lower upper class family, you know, that white, not middle class, not upper middle class, lower upper class and, and racist. Um, and so uh, anyway, uh, we got married and that I was never faithful in the marriage. And um, then when she wasn't faithful, uh, I blew up. I didn't, well, wasn't violent, but I was very suicidal. And um, um, how did you justify that to yourself? That's I'm okay. Because that was the culture. And very established. And I was in the advertising business. I was the vice president of the advertising agency. It's the way it is. And in the Jewish community, in Kansas City at least, everybody, not everybody, but most of the Jewish men had lovers. And everybody knew about it. But you weren't Jewish. No, but I mean, it was a, the male culture. You, you, you got to, I can't believe that you didn't understand that back in the, 50s and 60s, men, it was okay. Well, uh, it wasn't even okay for a girl to have sex. You know, it, it was, we, 
it, let's, the saying that's still prevalent is if you, uh, if you say no, you mean maybe. If you say maybe, you mean yes. If you say yes, you're no lady. <laughs> and there's even a song, country song, probably 15 years ago that I used in my workshop, a woman was singing and she was playing in that game, you know? So it was, and it was okay for men to go out in the culture and particularly advertising and marketing and all that, and, but not for women. <laughs> and it's, it's a, a slap in the face. You know, I can't control my woman, all that kind of stuff. This is 1974. This was before um, uh, that great movie, Kramer versus Kramer. And um, in fact, I went to my boss before Kramer versus Kramer. My, my former wife wanted me to raise our child because she wanted the MRS degree and about six months in, she was done. She wanted out of this. She and and Natalie, I'd come home and it was like fingernails on a chalkboard. You know, she was just had it with Natalie. When when Natalie, by the time she was six months old. Oh, day one, she she was. I changed the diapers and I I did all that stuff when I was home. And so when we got the divorce, my lawyer and her lawyer and the judge agreed that I shouldn't have the child because that never happens back then. And particularly my judge was 62 years old and had never given a child to the father, ever, particularly a girl. And so he said when my former wife was on the stand, he said, I disagree with your uh, dissolution. I'm, uh, the, the child will be with the mother. Mm. And she refused it on the stand. Wow. And he, he shut, and our divorce was five days from when I found out to when we were divorced. Because in Kansas, it's supposed to be six months. But if there's any, either one is in danger of harming themselves or somebody else, it can be an immediate situation. And I was, I am really clear that had I had a gun, I wouldn't be here. Either she wouldn't be here and he wouldn't be here or I wouldn't. And I made a determination that first night, I caught him. I caught him from across the street from his house, watching him take her upstairs to bed when she was supposed to be going to pick her father up at the airport. And I was ready to kill them both. How did you know to check on her? Kowinky Dink. <laughs> His name is Gordon Smiley. <laughs> he was dating a woman, Barbara, actually living. No, they weren't living together, but very intense. My wife was named Barbara. My name is Gordon. I was uh, in charge of the sports car magazine for the Kansas City Sports Car Club. And I was in 
SCCA in Chicago. And that's where we lived for the first five years of our marriage. Um, and, um, and then came back to Kansas City. And I took over this magazine and I made a beautiful magazine out of it and advertising and everything. And he was uh, a Formula uh, Ford racer and was working to get into IndyCars. And uh, so I asked him to write a column for the magazine that came out every quarter. And, um, and I knew that he and Barbara, my Barbara, was, um, they'd play tennis. They'd have lunch and they'd play tennis naive. I didn't realize anything else was going on. And, uh, but I realized they often had lunch together. So she's getting ready to go pick up, pick her father up at the airport. And she's going to run by a friend and, uh, and see, and my inclination is that she was talking about a girlfriend but it may have been just a, a friend and I transposed it. And I said to her, uh, by the way, the next time you and Gordon have lunch together, uh, tell him I need that article. Well, 20 minutes later, Gordon calls me and he says, uh, I promise, I know I owe you an article and I'll get it to you by the weekend. Something clicked there. That's just, how did he, that's not, that's psychic or it's fishy. And I picked up fishy and I drove by his house, which was like 15, 10, 15 minutes away. And there was my other Mercedes out in front. And I actually, they were in the kitchen and I went in and stepped up on a, a trash barrel that was upside down looking in the kitchen window, which, you know, now I, I know that they could, if they looked at the window at all, they'd see the light on my face. And then they left and uh, left the kitchen. And so I went around to the front and there was a, like a four foot ledge across the street no houses, but it was sort of built up. And so I kind of jumped up on the ledge and I watched him take her upstairs. And I could see the bedroom and I, could, I couldn't see the bed, but I could see her, uh, them falling back onto, onto something and it would be the floor of the bed. And went in internal rage. And um, the good thing that happened is I, I got home and I was just, I want to kill him. And then I got to thinking, well, if I kill him, Natalie would not have a mother and I'd be in prison and Natalie would be raised by Barbara's mother who is a witch. Um, and I couldn't picture that at all. And, um, so I was really seriously suicidal. And about nine or 10 o'clock at night, I called my medical doctor. 
And he, we talked and he then said, and I've used this a lot talking with men. He said, promise me that you won't do anything until we talk again. And being a man in integrity, I agreed. And about 10 o'clock at night, he rang the doorbell and he was there with a therapist. And um, it took me six months to really get, I shouldn't have been in that marriage in the first place, um, but that it was, you know, no wonder something like that happens. Uh, I had no right to have that. If I, I can do it, you can't. Um, and um, really was clear that, uh, of course, <laughs> and, and the ironic thing about that is that my daughter marries this very wealthy guy, um, his parent from Long Island, and his parents owned um, the, I think it's the Sterling, oh, the, the, the Bohemian Club. That in was- San Francisco? In San Francisco, that was his grandmother's home. Wow, he's wealthy. <laughs> yeah, and they owned a, a, a building over on Market and a lot of other stuff. Uh, you know, like a 30, $30 million mansion in Cape Cod and on the water and all that kind of crap. So they marry and I know my daughter and I know it wasn't for money. I mean, I, she was, she grew up and on her own and had bought had made enough money to buy her own car when she went to college and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, because it was a very tight knit uh, windsurf community in 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 uh, Hood River that she was part of, and um, so about three years in the marriage and one child, he uh, goes out on her and he cheats. And then it all comes out um, because they were talking about having a second child. And she said, um, uh, well, I'm not gonna have a second child with you if you are gonna continue. And um, so he promised he wouldn't. He did. She had a second child. He did. And what she did is she went on these cycle Oregon uh, trips or 500 mile cycling, you know, like a five or six day thing. And the third year that she did it, she met this guy. It's a real party trip too. They have a huge U-Haul with showers and another U-Haul with band equipment and bands and all this kind of stuff for every night and food and all that kind of stuff. And she hooked up with him. And um, so sort of like, like father, like daughter. Um, I was first and uh, Barbara was second and Jim was first and Natalie was second. 
what I don't understand is you you got married when Barbara was pregnant, but um, she didn't have the affair until well, oh you've been how many how many years were you married? Uh, seven or eight. Uh, let's see, we got married in '65. That was the year I graduated, and '74 uh, we moved to Chicago. We were in Chicago for about five or six years and came back because of infidelity mine we came back to kansas city to try to work it out and um in 74 is when i caught her but but coming back i was i was considerably more faithful when i was in chicago I, I worked a lot nights at the advertising agency, Leo Burnett, one of the biggest in the world, um, and had major clients, uh, Procter & Gamble, Nestle, and Mattel. Had Nestle and Mattel at the same time. So I'm sitting in Chicago, one day flying to New York and the other day flying to LA, you know, every week. And then spending two two days in the office trying to recuperate, um, but uh, yeah, we got a divorce and it all came down in '74. So Natalie was at that point nine. Yeah. So did the judge ever talk to Natalie and say, "Who do you want to live with?" Or they didn't do that then? No. That didn't happen. But what happened is that um, in talking to my therapist, I was worried about Natalie becoming my wife. She was nine, eight or nine, and she uh, was really worried. I always stayed up late working. I had to build a whole room in my house. I had this big drawing board and I had all my stuff laid out. If you look at this, it's where I had everything around me and I'd worked late nights and she get really worried about me and my eating right and all that kind of stuff. And I talked to my therapist about this and I said, this just doesn't feel right. And so he um, got her in KU Med Center, the, the psychology department. Uh, at KU Med Center in Kansas City, got Natalie in there, and uh, it was just perfect. When she was a girl, when she was yeah, like, when she was a child, yeah, and uh, it was perfect because Barbara's mother came up from Phoenix and charged into the judge's chamber and wanted to have custody of Natalie. And I knew that if I did anything out of bounds, you know, or not out of bounds in a culture, but if there was something that somebody charged me with, or you know, have a nude picture on my wall, or in my shop, you know, I have a Playboy fit up, or have have a magazine in my house, and somebody sees it, um, I could lose her. Back then, very easy. And so um, um, had to play it really straight. 
till till we moved to uh, California. And then How did I, you get custody if the judge gave it to Barbara? Because he decided the next morning, actually that morning, that night, I took Natalie to TGNY. And in those days, you could get a passport photo, you know, there in the, in the store. And I got passport photos for us. And I went down to the county, the city, and applied for passports because I was going to take her out of the country and live outside in Mexico uh, if this was the kind of country that I had to live in. Not knowing or realizing at the time that the minute I got down to the Guadalajara heading for Mexico City, which was an entry point, I would have been taken off the plane. We would have been taken off because I didn't have a notarized letter at that time from Barbara that I could take her out of the country. You still need that. Yeah. So do women need it? Yeah. That's, yeah. Okay. Um, well, and so it was, that's how angry I was at this judge, this whole thing. And my lawyer, you know, really not siding with me. And he, his decision was whether Natalie was to go to the foster home or with me, because Barbara didn't want him. You know, it would have messed up her relationship with Gordon. He, by the way, was the individual that went into the wall in Indianapolis in 1982 and died. Did, did they get married? No, well, yeah. My, my divorce papers were I paid 50 bucks a month for five years. And um, and then at the end, of, if she didn't get married, and and uh, I got tired of paying fifty bucks a month, and I paid the whole thing off, like after the second or third year. And she waited until the five years was up to get married. She did marry Gordon. She did marry mm. Barbara Smiley. Yeah, and uh, and he raced for several more years. Well, 70, 80. He raced for a couple more years. He got on with Gordon Johncock, uh, this racing team, and raced. Uh, he raced in England for a year. They were both over there for a year, and then she moved down to Texas. Did Did he ever like apologize to you or? Did you ever have a conversation with him? Well, um, we had um, Natalie had her period. We were, God, things get confusing. We were at a race. We were in, Natalie and I and a girlfriend that I met in that Ashley was the uh, manage, management supervisor of Milton Myers. Uh, he had the, the complex in Kansas City, Crown Center. And we had our advertising agency in Crown Center. And Linda Pope, I met her. Well, I knew her anyway, but there was nothing between us at all until after my divorce and after hers. 
and then we got together and ended up moving to California. Um, and at one point, we went to a race. I think it was Riverside. Natalie and I went down. I think Linda and I were broken up by that time. But we went down uh, to see the race. And on that weekend, Natalie had her period. And she was with Gordon and Barbara when it happened. And I was at the motel. And that afternoon, she comes, comes back and she starts crying. She hadn't told her, she hadn't told Barbara. And uh, so, and she confided in me and we went out and got the necessary equipment. And it was just sort of this, she wanted to tell me because we had that kind of relationship. I mean, it, we were talking about, you know, she would talk to me about thinking about being sexual and all that. And, and actually her girlfriends, I'd come home from work in, in Marin County and there'd be five girls in my house, you know? And, and I, I made it clear to them, I'll talk to you, to you guys about anything. And actually after her, Natalie's senior year in college and high school, two of the girls moved into my house. After they turned 18, I wanted to be sure I don't want to have any complications, you know? And there wasn't anything like that, but the possibility and what I'd been under for all the years since the divorce of really playing a straight line and having no possible complications. Um, the, uh, but, but uh, so probably since 13, we uh, talked and there was one time and I don't remember her age, but there was one time she said, yeah, I, this guy and I really like him. And, um, I, I want to do it. And so we got the necessary, took her to the doctor and got the necessary preparation and, and uh, let her do it. And it lasted for like three months, you know, and she got it, you know, she got, no, it, I gotta, I gotta find more important things before I get involved that way again. And here, here I had probably not by then, but had all six levels of high human awareness Institute, uh, Standale stuff up at Harvard. Oh, it's incredible stuff, but uh, really bringing sexual, the stuff we get stuck with, with the church and all that kind of stuff and the shame and getting that out of your body in a healthy way. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's uh, how all that went. I don't know what the question was, but I hope I answered it. <laughs> what, um, you're, you're kind of really well known for the father wound. I'm gonna go undo that phone. So do you still think that um, 
the, the key to understanding men is the father wound, that we, we don't have enough time or learning from our dads. Okay. <laughs> um. In my opinion, and and some of this comes from uh, oh, she wrote the book um, the wounded woman. Um, Clarissa, something no, like that. No, not Clarissa Pencola Estes. Hmm. Um, anyway, I, we can look it up. It's a wounded woman, and. In there, I actually, my very first workshop at Harvard was the male experience. And in that workshop- you, Wait, you taught it? I taught it. And in that workshop, did you know George Simon? I, I interviewed him for this book. George was there and uh, Jed Diamond was in it uh, and several other men. And in that, I realized, and I used a lot of magic. Uh, I'd been trained by Michael Harner, and so I had all of this stuff, uh, and uh, uh, several other Native Americans, and did Gay Luce's uh, mystery schools for nine months and all that kind of stuff, and learned a bit of shamanism. And uh, so I did this workshop at Harvard, and I'd rented the big conference center, hoping to get more people. Did a direct mail list in Palo Alto and Marin and all that kind of stuff and didn't get many, but I learned there about how wounded the, the all the stories that these men were telling me was the wound, that the, how they were wounded by their dad. So I started exploring that and I saw a wounded woman and read it and there's six wounds that can come from the father, no matter how good the father is. Everybody, every woman gets wounded by their father. What about men? And that's what I interpolated because in doing that work, it was really clear that we're all wounded, but in a very different way because women you know he can be the perfect father and in that scenario generally the perfect father is um doesn't show the feelings you know he shows the love and all but he doesn't show a full range of feelings and she follows in love with men who are like her father and that's an impossible thing because there's no man that you're going to live with all your life in a sexual way that can be that kind of person. But the, the, the perfect father is never shows that side. And of course, there's an abusive father and, and there's six of them. And so I used a lot of that work in, um, in developing the work. And in fact, my first, I think I did one workshop, Father Wound for Men. And the next eight or nine, and I've got them listed somewhere. My next eight, nine, or 10 were with women and were 
in at uh, uh, a ranch in Sonoma, a really neat conference center at, uh, at uh, Harbin, at the Pathwork Center in Phoenicia, New York, uh, in at, at uh, another place in Wisconsin, north of Chicago. And I think I worked in Phoenix or Tucson when we had the, the Men, and Men and Masculinity Conference down there. I hooked up with a number of, of uh, guys from Tucson. Um, and anyway, uh, did it with all of these women. Much to the dis dismay of a several therapists in the Bay Area, but a 65-year-old therapist from Berkeley was very upset. Why were you upset? Who are you, she? Who are you to teach women about the wound? And finally, uh, she said, well, I do this workshop. And um, why don't you come to it for women? I go to it. And about halfway through, she looks at me and says, I got it. I can't do this. How can I carry the energy and the feeling and the knowledge of what it is to be a man? And that just shifted everything for her. And then I just used that information with any other therapist that had trained with it. And uh, so you can't do it. I can't do a workshop on healing the mother wound. I know a lot about it, but I had to go out. Actually, Joya Jennings was my first uh, person that I trained to do healing the mother wound. And then did you, do you know Carolyn Baker? Uh, she's a, an author and a union. And when, you knew Joya Jennings from, oh. from uh, she was part of the Women and Men's Task Group for uh, NOMAS. I didn't know her. Okay. Well, <laughs> that and then uh, when she did it for a couple of years and then I found Carolyn Baker um, who wrote a book retitled, but it was originally uh, The Dark feminine within men and women. Uh, and I forget how they ended up. She did it for a while. And then uh, I got a woman that had been a trainer around the world for woman, uh, woman within, which is the female counterpart to New Warrior. Yeah, what, what's your connection with women within? Or uh, well, I tried to get Char Tosi to um, do it. Char, Char's the one that created Woman Within. Um, and I had done New Warrior in 1990 and Spiritual Warrior in 1990 out in Chicago. And so I knew these guys uh, and um, knew Tosi and particularly and uh, had a number of women do, in fact, my daughter do 
woman with him. But I also ended up getting a lot of the woman with him trainers because they would um, uh, get in touch with my work in some way. I got them from Toronto and Chicago. I, my main connection with woman within was Chicago because I knew, you know, I was there with uh, uh, doing the workshops there and all. Um, and, um, um, and what I was, what the, the trainers would come away with is Shar is really afraid of women's anger. And uh, they tried to impress Shar to look at that because in the workshops, the woman, a woman would get angry and they'd all sort of hover around her and say, that's okay, that's okay. And not let her experience her anger. In my work, you, if I can get you into rage, I'm going to get you into rage, you know, without hitting anything. No badaka bats, no walls, no pounding pillows, none of that shit, because that's violence. That's integrating violence into your body. And she just kept, um, oh, I, we, we got this training here and I got to go staff that and never did it. Bill Kalf did, you know, he did Father Wound, and he did my six day healing, uh, clearing the air between women and men, which I love that work. And Shauna and I, and Lourdes and I did that, which who was before Shauna. And then Shauna did that with me for nine years, six days of getting six women and six men that had done Father Wound and Mother Wound in up at Harbin with a commitment, a contract that I will never be in a romantic relationship with anybody that I took this workshop with. So that we could really get to that level underneath all of the primping and the games and all that kind of stuff. So we aren't trying to impress each other so we can get in bed with each other. We're really trying to learn what it is about women and what it is about men and what I'm holding about you and, and then go into rage with you in a, safe, in a safe way, but in heavy, heavy rage. So I get is it that, out of my body. Is that what was the dominant feeling in those men women's group was rage is that what came up from both genders well no because women are not allowed to experience rage and women my experience again is that you are not allowed because your mother or your grandmother or somebody you know was locked up they had their ovaries taken out all kinds of things when they were too strong for men. And it just, you have to stamp on your anger and really keep it controlled. And what I found is that in one of the examples I use in the work, and it took us like three days before we ever get to rage. 
to work up to it, to make it safe. But uh, there's an elevator, it's got 10 floors. The one, and so here is, uh, here is really just soft, nice, pleasant person. This is a man, this is a woman. Men will, uh, they'll uh, get triggered. And this is the one thing I liked about Bly, is he got men into grief. And they would get in and, and start feeling the grief. Mainly, that was the main avenue in. And then go all the way down to the basement and break, you know, and cry. And I saw in that getting rid of the anger. Women would get down to the fifth floor and stop and they wouldn't get any deeper in there until I coaxed and got them down there because there was this fear that they'd go crazy. If they got into their grief. If they got into their anger. Uh, so for men, it, they were getting into their grief and women into their anger. Right, right. Because I have no trouble getting men into anger. You know, that, that's something that's acknowledged in the category, you know, in the culture. That's where men are go. The culture's allowed that. They do it inappropriately. They do it appropriately. Football, all kinds of things. Uh, uh, but women, it's not allowed. Be a bitch. You're a bitch. You know, all of this. Blah, 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 blah. When you show the little, and this is 1970, okay? Um, or eight, 80s, 80s, um, late 80s, um, you had to really be um, controlled in that area. And that's what caused, in my opinion, a lot of de destruction in marriage, because if you don't use your anger, one of the first things that's used is passive aggressive. Withholding sex, burning the food. Yep, yep. And the guy never knows, you know, and that's how you get it. And so in, in clearing the air, it was getting to those levels of really understanding to open us all up to really, and, and we meet, as soon as COVID gets over, we, a group of us meet that have done the work uh, a couple times a year, and we met at Harbin. We'd have as many as 50 people uh, come at Harbin, and we've got a, uh, uh, it's called uh, OMSI, open-hearted, non-sexual intimacy. And I use the way that Stan Dale spells intimacy is into me. E-C. C. I even had a, a license plate with that on it. And a, uh, that was my early email. Um, and I've got a lot of stuff on one of my websites, my Clearing the Air website about intimacy. I got a lot of that from uh, Charlie Kreiner and the reevaluation re re counseling community uh, is unravel all of that stuff and get down to the core trigger, what's down there at the bottom on everything, you know, everything that you get triggered on 
Okay, let's be in the emotion, not in, not in the head, not trying to figure it out because it's an emotional piece that's stuck in the body. And it really allowed us with the women and men's work to get to incredibly intimate levels, not sexually, but physically. And we could have a puppy pile and you wouldn't know where your hands were or anything else. You know, it, it doesn't matter. You're not groping anybody. But it's not, you know, it's just a, a bunch of puppies um, rolling around all over each other, uh, which is, and a number of marriages have happened out of that uh, that are really, I, I get notes all the time, not all the time, but I get notes periodically now on that one. I haven't done that work for like seven years, something like that. No, I, the last workshop was in 2011. Um, so it's been 10 years since I've done that work. And it uh, saved a lot of marriages. It ended a number of marriages because people saw that they were in their own relationship. Shauna, for instance, her husband was abusive. And she was the smiler, you know, she was the cheerleader, actually the cheerleader, um, and would smile it off and just bury the violence until she did the work and uh, got really clear this is not a relationship I ought to be in. So and do you do you do you think of yourself as a feminist, a masculinist, neither? Where what what how do you if if you um, had the same fa facial reaction when you said feminist and had it when you said masculinist, I would say uh, you definitely showed me a different face because this is something that really bugs me. Feminism, and I've got the dictionary, the feminist dictionary, about that thing. Feminism, everything about feminism is positive. Everything about masculine is negative. No, that's not, masculine means leader, protector. Uh, well, not according to the feminists. No, that's not true. Uh, And in, in the culture today, I almost never see the word masculine. Without toxic, I know. Right. Um, let's see. Misogyny and misandry. Okay. Um, mass. M-A-S. Uh, 
I, I'll just read you. This is the very first definition of masculinity. What's the name of this book? A Feminist Dictionary. Oh. See how big it is? <laughs> yeah. All kinds of stuff. Is not the opposite of femininity. Masculinity is not the opposite of femininity. The starting point for understanding masculinity lies in the asymmetrical dominance and prestige which accrue to males in this society. Male dominance takes shape in the position of formal, formal and informal power men hold in the social division of labor, et cetera, et cetera. That's a definition that I see and how if, if feminism was truly men and women should be not assigned anything that we all ought to be able to do anything that we choose to do. And, um, uh, and it's not that way. And I have not found a culture yet that really teaches all men and women are open to all tasks. And some of the Native Americans are probably the most equalized, but they still have roles for women. Even when the women run the tribe, yeah. there's certain things for women to do. The, the men hunt and the women gather and take care of babies. Right. But that's physiological necessity, so it makes sense. No, it didn't. You, you go into a lot of cultures, and women are the ones that are, were, are taking care. Now, I don't agree with it, but look at, look at the, uh, Afghanistan. They're going right back to where men sit and do nothing, and women have to do all the work and can't be out in public and can't drive a car and all those kinds of things, you know? And, and it's, um, it's very controlled. Women can do anything. Um, men can actually uh, breastfeed a child. They can't have a child unless it's a uh, transsexual situation. But I, I heard somewhere that that might've been a possibility. No. Everything else in cultures like Israel and all, all a number of different cultures, women are in total combat. You know, they're they're up there on the front lines. Not, the Kurds, the Kurds, uh, Rojava in northern Syria, they're totally equal. Well, or they try to be Israel. Israel's that way. The women are trained just as much as the men are, um, and and there, there are some women that are good enough to play pro football and pro basketball on men's teams. There's no reason that we can't have it, but what the culture's done, and I don't know if this is true now, but back 20 years ago, the uh, NCAA had a smaller basketball for women and for men hmm. and so that's the assumption that women's hands are smaller but boys are learning to play basketball with really small hands you know 
So why can't we all play the same basketball? Why do we, I so loved uh, the soccer, you know, with our women's soccer team. Oh, yeah. Go out and kick butt. And, and in the, this Olympics, the, um, which amazed me with the, um, uh, what's that rugby? You know, women's rugby. And they're, they're slamming each other. And so what, what do you call yourself <clears throat> if you had to be labeled? An asshole. <laughs> um, if I had it, well, no. Um, see, I do believe that we all ought to have the same rights. Yeah. The same responsibility. Mm -hmm. And um, that there should not be, this is for her and this is for him. And, and if women would, if, if men, if this is true, that men don't allow women to do the risky jobs. I just put together a thing last night on the 10 most risky jobs. And number one is logging. And number two is, uh, like trucking and all, I, I don't know where it is right now, but I've got it here. Uh, if those jobs permitted women, which I think most of them do now, um, I wanna see women take those jobs because they pay better. And they pay better because men are risking their lives. And, and it's, an unequal footing right there. Uh, and to expect women to work in the office at a lumber mill and get the same rate that the guy does going out cu cutting trees, a little off base. I wanna, I wanna see women for the exact same job and the commitment and time and training get the same pay. Warren Farrell talks about wanting gender equality. Would you put yourself in that kind of? Language? Well, I don't, I'm always confused about the use of gender because gender is masculine, feminine. Um, and it's been distorted, in my opinion, to be male and female. And um, so, and then the whole uh, LGBT community has really gotten in with gender. And I'm, I'm totally supportive of it, but um, incorporating the word gender. Um, tell me something that you would think that I would think women should not do. Anything? I don't, I, I don't think you can find anything except have a kid. And, and I know men can breastfeed kids. How can they? Yeah, they'd have to take hormones. Yeah, yeah and they do. Really? And, yes, they do. Uh, and there was a plane probably 25 years ago that was had a, a group of women that were going somewhere into the south from San Francisco, from Sacramento, and it went down. And all the, the a lot of the women had infants, and 
the men um, got trained on um, breastfeeding, whatever they had to do. And I, I remember seeing videos and probably if you look up on men breastfeeding and Lacrosha La or Lacosa or something like that website who very strong for women breastfeeding. I think they oh, even- Malachi. Yeah, yeah. I think they probably have something on. I know I have a bunch of information on the website and I haven't updated my men's stuff website in a long time, but I got a lot of stuff there. And I think women can easily learn how to pee standing up and use a urinal, just like men do. There's training, there's women's websites that train women how to do that. You just squat. No, no I'm talking about a urinal. You're, that's how you squat would. over the urinal. I do it all the time. Okay, well, they, they, there's, it's a two-finger process. <laughs> and you can, you can piss over the hood of a car. I, <laughs> I remember one of the women in, uh, in sports car racing, uh, she wanted to join the group of men drivers. And this one macho guy from Kansas City, who was one of the big racers, said, You can join us when you can push it, piss over the hood of the car. At the next race, <laughs> she did it over the hood of his race car. That's wild. Okay, let me ask you about some um, details. You said, I introduced, this was at a NOMAS. I introduced them to Jack Kammer, Fred Hayward, Tom Wilkinson. Them. Were, they were father's rights put, guys. Put the word them where it's read. What? You say, I actually got him, them, something. In, I introduced in them. Yeah. And so I act, okay. I introduced them to Jack Kammer, Hayward Wilson, who were major leaders in the father rights movement. I actually got them to come to the conference in Portland and then all hell broke loose. Okay, we have Seattle, but you mean Portland. I'm, I'm next to positive it was Portland. I don't remember. And I think it was out at Lewis and Clark. I don't think. Okay, I'll check because I don't, I don't remember a Portland conference, but I know there was one in Seattle. Well, and I know there was one in Portland. Okay, You're, you were there. But um, I, don't, I, don't, I, can't, I can't guarantee. I've got here Portland as a question because that's my memory. And there's a Lewis and Clark is in an area uh, with a, a large community of gays, LGBT. And we spend time there. Okay. Well, then I'm going to change it to Portland. Well, no, check it out. Okay. With Moshe or somebody. Well, they have a list of all the um, the, the yeah. conferences on their website. Um, okay. That, that was probably, I mean, I have a hard time guessing, probably 80, 85, something like that. That was the one where Bob Brennan and and um, a couple other people were playing a lot of dirty politics back in the back. They, I was in that charge. Was in Pittsburgh. Huh? 
I think that was in Pittsburgh because I was there and and I said, yes, Warren Farrell and Jack and Fred, whoever should be able to speak. And then the, the, uh, the Nocum guy said, well, would you let Phyllis Shapley speak? And I said, I would love to debate Phyllis Shapley. So I, I was there during that. Yeah, I think okay. so. Okay. Well, whatever the one that was, there was a lot of dirty politics going. And that's when I was co-chair. So uh, that feels like around the mid 80s. Okay. I'll 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 check and get back to you. Okay. Okay, okay then we go down to why was Nomas uncomfortable with father's rights issues? Apparently that's still an issue. They I guess they think father's rights means men's rights, Fred Hayward guys. Right. Um well see that's the that's the poison that's in feminism. Keep going. Men, I mean, that, that's um, in some areas of feminism that uh, men getting together and doing what women do getting together is not allowed. What do you mean? I don't get that. Well, they're, they're called men's rights guys. And men's rights or father's rights is taken as a negative, whereas women's rights and mother's rights is a positive. Mm. So what you're saying is the, the really feminist men look at father's rights as a no-no because it puts father's rights over mother's rights? No, no, not at all. No. Men, men are putting, if you are wanting to, um, the, the latest stats I see, saw, was I think, and I've got a, tons of numbers going through my head, but, and I don't remember the year, I wrote it down when uh, states started doing equal custody, assumed. Preferred, it's called. Oh, joint. Preferred mode of joint custody, yeah. Right, jo joint physical and joint, um, Phys uh, the other one. Physical and? The one you can make decisions on and the one yeah. that- Legal, uh, they call it legal. Physical legal. and legal. Yeah, right. And um, so at that time, about 15 to 20% of single parent households uh, were fathers. It's down to eight. Wow. So it has even more. It's increased. Well, that, that is something I saw probably three or four months ago. Well, and, you know, I haven't written an article on it, but I, I noted that in my, my brain somewhere. And there was dollars included with it 
that um, that the actual those that owe women that owe child support to men are at a much higher rate percentage-wise than men who owe it to women. And it's always talked about as, well, that's a whole nother world. Uh, okay, but, so, so the feminists think if you are for men's rights or father's rights, it means you're neglecting women's rights or putting men's rights. No, I'm not comparing that. Um, I'm, so my question to you is why is NOMAS uncomfortable with father's rights issues? Because they are, don't, don't make this part of my speech or, or part of my book. Um, because um, they so need the approval of women. And it's the extreme women, the the Dworkins. That you've got to say that that is not the middle of the road feminist movement. That is extreme right women's uh, right uh, feminism, extreme feminism. Would you agree with me? Yes. Okay. They the men that are in except motion, and then there are a few, Harry Broad. Uh, I had a lot of respect for Harry, and I, had, I didn't like Jim Cohen, and of course not Brandon, and not Stoltenberg. Uh, of course, uh, I think Charlie um, Kreiner really woke up the uh, Nomos, and he was there for four or five years on what patriarchy is and how it is established and how it is supported by women so that they get special benefits out of it. And that is never looked at from a pro-feminist male standpoint in the extreme right. And I put nomos in the extreme right. Um, I put a lot of the men's rights and father's rights groups in this extreme right also, uh, in the extreme, uh, because there is an incredible amount of rage and anger in some of those groups. Tom Williamson, uh, Jack Kammer, uh, uh, Fred Hayward, you know, they're there. I put them in, Fred a little less, uh, no, no, um, uh, God, my mind, I've been in his home. Um, oh, here, I'm just looking. In red, I've got Justin Sterling. So um, uh, on that second page, I talked about women, sex, and men, sex, and power. Um, who wrote the book with um, John Gray? Um, well, you mean men are from Mars, women are from Venus? Well, that's the book that John wrote. Who is the man? He wrote a, they wrote a book on boys. Oh, that's Warren Farrell. Yeah, okay. Warren Farrell, uh, 
I think he's got a lot of good things to say. I'm not a, a total advocate there, but I think he statistically clears up a lot of really misleading feminist propaganda. Um, so I put him a little closer to the center. I, I don't really know. Charlie Craner, I think, was right in the middle. Um, I, I think his thinking and was, oh, and I don't, I think uh, Kimmel is really manipulative. Um, he invited um, Steve Kessler and I to his class in um, Berkeley and um, asked us to talk about the men's movement. And we said some things and he never said anything until after we left. And then he started in his rant and we had somebody that recorded it. And, and Steve and I, and Steve's not a men's rights or anything. You know, he's a therapist from doing, he's more into Bly than anything. Um, and we, um, took every one of those points and fact-checked it and wrote it up and gave it to this student who uh, secretly, and I hope he didn't get caught, uh, secretly distributed it to the class. Wow. Um, and and I, I find him very, very manipulative that way. Um, but uh, he, he did that at that one conference where I talked. He uh, wanted them to talk, and then uh, the back, the stuff back, you know, the backroom stuff. It's just, it is so patriarchal. You know, they talk about wanting to be feminists. And that's one of those patriarchal things. The back room, you know. Um. Okay. Let's see. Where we have, um, it didn't look at the damage that children get from women. Okay, you gotta tell me where we are. Well, um, it says it didn't look at the damage that children get from women. And it's on page three. Oh, I, I'm, there are a lot of red things on, on two. Do we need to do those? Um, I think that we've done them. Uh, you, you said something about uh, seven child. Oh, uh, the, uh, you say, please cite. Um, yeah. It's put out every month, I mean, every year by uh, House. Oh, shit. I'll get it here. See all of these books? I do. They're called Child Maltreatment. And it's put out once a year. Now they don't do the book. They do it, and you know, you got to print it out. Maybe they do the book, but in here is an example of it. And in here, uh, and I have this on my website, um, the, and still to this day, women represent about 60% of maltreatment of children. Now don't say anything, 
don't give me the excuse that it's because they're around children more. That would tell me that maybe they shouldn't be around children more. I mean, honestly, if, if you're going to have six, if you're going to have two thirds of the kids abused by their mothers or their female caretakers, that shouldn't, Child Protective Services ought to look at that. And the only category where men lead women out of the seven maltreatments here is sexual abuse. And when back in 97 and all, they would break that out as who's the perpetrator. And it'll be like the mother, the boyfriend, the mother and father, uh, the childcare person, etc. They no longer break it out and break the, the female and partner, female parents, dual parents, female and partner, male and partner, etc. But when they had it broken out, I combined the percentage of female and the percentages of male. And of course, you couldn't determine on some of those, like the caregiver, they didn't break that out by sex. And in those four categories, women represented 40% of the sexual abuse of children. So, you know, we, we had the 60% there. Women have the 60% on physical abuse, emotional abuse, um, uh, and the other categories. Uh, I have not, a, not, I each, have... not each one of them are 60%, but there's, there's different percentages. The total in maltreatment is like 60, 40. Well, in the CDC, I found something in 2012 that said 54% of the perpetrators were women, 45% were men. Uh, that was 2012, CDC. Of, of maltreatment of all seven categories? I think so. Yeah, child abuse. Oh, uh, well. Violence. Uh, well, there, there's, um, okay. Um, well, this is from U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families, Administration on Children, Youth, and Families, Children's Bureau. Okay. It's called Child Maltreatment Reports from States to the National Child Abuse and Neglect Data System. Okay. And, uh, and I, I don't... Um, Okay, the last copy I have is nine, uh, 2019. So whatever that says, and maybe it's changed, but um, well, uh, perpetrators, 66.
perpetrators. Is by far white, 49% white. Uh, it's the majority, let's see, a perpetrator by age, 83% are between the ages of 18 and 44, and it breaks it out by age. Um, it's really uh, 25 to 34 is really high. Uh, it's 4.7. Uh, 35 to 44 is 3.3, 18 to 24 is 2.5. So yeah, I don't, I'm not concerned about the age. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, it very interesting. Table five three perpetrators by sex. The category of unknown sex includes not reported. So this is 5-3. Uh, okay. Uh, nationally, the, um, well, they, they don't have it in percent. They have it by each state. Um, okay, I'll, uh, Okay, um, total perpetrators. Okay, this says 46%, 46.1% uh, male, 53.0% female. So it's much closer. Okay. Uh, but it doesn't break it out by, oh, it has perpetrators by race and ethnicity, perpetrators relationship to their victims. That, that's good. We got the, the male, female. Yeah. Um, okay. In, um, you say Judith Wallerstein in Behind Closed Doors, she was writing about female abuse of children? Yes. Okay. Behind Closed Doors, uh, and, and that was a tenure, and uh, she got death threats from writing that book. She continued her research and did another tenure book. Um, and I had that, I've sent all of that to Michigan State. Um, and it continued. And I've got um, another book that that I think is incredibly important that I kept. Actually, I bought another copy because 
I given it to uh, I given it to um, Michigan State. Shit, where is it? Well, I'm going to have to. It's it's um, done research, and and it got a very interesting title also, but it's um, done research in the emergency room, and um, and it talks a lot about trauma and all that kind of stuff. But what it shows is that a majority of the women that end up in the emergency room from domestic violence started the physical violence. And I think that's really important to understand. They get, men get provoked usually when they're drunk, usually when they've been drinking, not drunk, but when they've been drinking and that's when most domestic violence situations happen when there's drugs or alcohol involved. Mm. And women are the instigators. Okay. Um, look down, there's, you say there's no androgynous society where the women and men have equal power. And then the last sentence, I've been looking the last couple of weeks at African cultures and some of the ones that have hardly been visited by outsiders and do you, can you finish that thought? What, what is, uh, oh, okay. Um, God. And so African cultures where they're pretty equal? Yeah. Um, there's a, a child development book. Yeah. And she, she's from England and she, moved to San Francisco years ago, um, the continuum concept. And I don't know if that was an African culture, but she, the culture that she studied um, was very remote and had no violence from boys in the culture. And that was just one of the things she taught. I think it's the best child development book I've ever come in contact with. And God knows we need something around child development with parents today, because we're totally disattached from our kids and it's causing crisis. What do you mean we're detached from our kids? <clears throat> well, you know, attachment theory and all of that. Mm -hmm. Right. Sue Johnson. And how, how that went 
out when um, uh, women wanted to work. Uh, they've lost that connection and now both men and women have lost the connection with their kids because all of them are spending so much time working. Um, uh, but anyway, so she writes the book, Continuum Concept, and she goes back several years later to revisit. And all of a sudden there's violence. The boys are violent. And what she learned is that this one family was uh, asked to move to the capital of the country as a liaison to this group of rather primitive people. And their son picked up the thing, like we feel that Hispanics and Irish are in, and Scots are a lot more violent than uh, a lot of other cultures. You know, the French and the, and the uh, Italians and all. Uh, he brought that back and that poisoned that culture. So it, to me, it was a message that we are not born. Boys are not born violent. It's not testosterone. It's the training. How, how to be a man, be tough. Don't, don't help, don't seek help. Don't never be a victim. God knows you don't want to be a victim. So okay. I don't know if that helps there. Oh yeah, but, I can, that gives me a lot. I can, okay, then now, go, to, go there, down. There seemed to be a tribe, the beautiful people, where the men really uh, once a year gather and um, beautify and feathers and makeup and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and there's marriage doesn't matter at that time. And the women pick the men they want to be with. Um, so I, that was sort of an example of, um, some of that egalitarian. I know it seemed like some of the Arab tribes and maybe African, uh, the woman had control of the nomadic tribes. The woman had control of the entrance to the house. And if she was upset with a husband, she'd get the women together and they'd move the yurt. They turn the yurt so the door the door was still there, but he was not allowed to enter. So um, go down to the red where it says there's um, men, sex, and power guys out of Oakland. Oakland. Oh yeah, you mentioned that a little bit. Yeah. Now before that, uh, I think on uh, where you say Australian Aboriginal, Maori. They're called Maori. The, no, the Maori in New Zealand. Oh, okay. Well, that's what I mean there. Wait, where is this? Uh, Australia. It, just before you're talking, uh, I've got Swahili okay. brothers and yeah. Maori, Maori brothers. 
who okay. had, and you you wrote in Aboriginal Australian okay. Aboriginal. It's so it should be New Zealand. Um, oh, no, not not country. Just Maori brothers. Okay, so the Maori, uh, but I they're they're from New Zealand. Well, I don't say what country Swahili brothers are. Okay, that's a tribe. Okay. Got it. Now, um, back up to the start of this paragraph. Men's stuff is lowercase without the apostrophe S space. So okay. M-E-N-S-T-U-F-F. One word. One word with only one S. Men's stuff. Okay, got it. Okay, then um, in right after the Maori situation, uh, the work about Folsom Prison uh, that we worked with on getting in touch with who they really are, their core at their core, not their not, not your not not how they've been trained. Wait, the work uh, at Folsom Prison, we work with on getting in touch with who they really are at their core, not how they've been trained. Right. Okay. Now, do you have any, is there a question in the, in the red? Do you, um, What's the point of it? What What do you want to say about Justin Sterling? Well, um, I'm just trying to say what what are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about uh, men. Okay, let's. There's. You're talking about the Mankind Project. No, okay. Um, what do you think of every man? Do you know that group? Yeah, uh, years ago. Uh, well, I knew their publication and I think, I don't know, I can't remember. I, I think my, memory is good uh if you told me a couple of the people i'm thinking of chris somebody um who i interviewed was colin marcus don't know him okay um do we what do you want to say about the um sterling men sex and power guy anything well uh i think i'm talking about the different segments of the men's movement? Yeah, good. Okay, and that's, that is one of those, um, that's, um, it's, to me, it's a, and I did it, to me, it's an un, it's an unhealthy, um, uh, Mankind Project. 
Um, the, uh, the one thing that I really, really applaud them for. And you're talking about Justin Sterling. Yeah. The Mankind Project has, they try to get everybody into an individual men's group. They call them- um, I groups. I groups for integration and, and to work on their, what their mission is and to really work that in their lives. What Sterling does is he gets them into groups too and they don't really do that kind of work, but they do community projects. And some of them have done some stuff in uh, uh, with like Boys to Men, but I don't think that's uh, from Sterling. I think that's from Mankind. So I really like that part as, I don't know if I said it here, I noticed uh, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers has come back. Oh. Uh, they had a big convention at one of the football stadiums, uh, but it's not like- When you know, was that? I mean, this year? Yeah. In fact, look up Promise Keepers. They've got a website and it'll be on there. Um, the one, you know, the women's movement really attacked them and it's dirty play, I think. And they attacked them because of their position of women are subservient to men. Okay, I hear that. And the women accept that. They believe it too. They don't get in those relationships unless they believe that. And what they're, the, what I saw the women's movement doing at that time, because at that time I, I flew a lot and I would purposely sit with a man if I could. And then sometimes he was with his wife and they were promise keepers and I talked to her. And, and she wasn't trying to prop up her husband at all. Every woman I talked to, they loved what the promise keepers were all about because the seven promises, they got their husband, the promise keepers got their husbands to honor was making him a better father and a better husband. And it was within the religious structure, yep but they, those guys aren't getting it any other way. And so I felt it was a really a disservice to both the men and their wives to do that because it, it created, and I don't, I'm, my stepmother was evangelical and that's where her sexual and physical abuse in me came from, you know? And so I hold nothing no good feelings about evangelicals, but I really felt positive about promise keepers because of how they change the men that are in their church, some men in their church to be better fathers and better husbands. So why did your dad let your stepmother abuse you physically and sexually? Um, If he knew, I don't know that he knew, but uh, um, 
he did as it grew as I grew older, and he finally got a divorce at uh, when I was sixteen. Um, but um, I know he didn't know about the sexual stuff that happened when I was started when I was like two or three years old. She'd bathe me and suck me, and I have never enjoyed intercourse. Love a blowjob, not from a man. I've done that from a woman. There's a different feminine energy about that. And I get, I don't get off anymore, but I would get off in having intercourse. Never had anal and I wish I had experienced that just to see what it's like. My adventurous Pisces, but uh, it damaged me for life. And I took a lot of workshops. That's why I did six levels of high. I did reevaluation counseling. I did uh, rolfing uh, to try to get that out of my body. And he could, he could see that it was physically locked in my body and that I was tied down with ropes at one time because when he was working on my body, all of a sudden my arms could flail and my legs could flail my torso was absolutely still. And it took me back to, I had to ask my sister and she remembers me and she turned her head when I asked her and uh, she could see me from her crib being tied to a, a chair. And I remember the chair so well, and it had a back on it and had legs about that tall, it was a real stubby chair. And, and she remembered me being tied to that in her crib. Only my body remembers. And I remember the chair, but I don't remember being tied down. I remember being laid on by my step-grandmother. And this was my step-grandmother that tied me down. Oh, wait. So you, it wasn't your stepmother, it was your step-grandmother who did the abuse? It was my step-grandmother. Oh. And she was, in fact, rumor had it after I got out of under that household that my grandparents thought that uh, she had actually uh, killed her son. Uh, and her son died. Uh, but uh, that was a feeling. And she was a witch. Well, what, a your stepmother didn't protect you? Oh, she was a witch, too. Did she abuse you as well? Yes, she physically abused me. She, she my, okay, my step-grandmother physically abused me. My stepmother sexually and physically abused me. Uh, oh, you got it from both. Yep. No wonder you talk about father wound because the father should have protected you. Yep. Well, and, and what, and my analysis of that is if he felt it, if he got a sense of it, uh, he worked all the time. He worked late at night out of the house. He had a hardware store and then he had a printing company. And uh, he was always, particularly the printing company. I remember going down in downtown Kansas City to printing litho and 
printing penthouse letter and, letter and litho, which was up on the seventh floor of this building in downtown Kansas City. And I'd go up after school and help him print. We never talked much. He helped me, he put together a go-kart for me and I raced go-karts. We never talked much. I did, did that all on my own. He, he helped me put it together. That's why I got my daughter into go-kart race when we got a divorce, because that was a really good thing to bond. When, when your mom, she died when you were a baby? Year and a half old, leukemia. Then they didn't have a cure. They don't now, do they? I, there are some things they can do. And, and yes, a lot of people die from it, but yeah. Well, yeah, and if I, you know, uh, what's her name talks about, one of the big therapists talks about 95% um, of us are from dysfunctional families. And um, John Bradshaw? No, it's a woman. And, and she's a well known woman. And she does tours, did tours. Like 10 years ago, there were a group, like, uh, kind of wish I could remember names anymore. Um, this, this group of six therapists, three women and three men, and they go all over the country and do these day long workshops for 50 bucks. They come to San Francisco. Um, anyway, uh, and she said 90 or 95% of us came from dysfunctional families and nobody knows the other 10%. Mm. Because, and if, and my feeling is that if my mother had lived, I'd be in that 10%. Because everything I know about my dad and my mother's relationship is magic. Mm. And um, uh, and the other side of that is I would have stayed in Kansas City, probably. I would have been in the advertising business. I would have gotten a cabin down at the Lake of the Ozarks. All of my, both sides of my family have cabins down at the Lake of the Ozarks. Every one of my cousins has a cabin next to their father's cabin. Uh, he bought property for all of them. And then they all put in in cabins of their own. He's gone, but um, uh, I would have gotten a cabin down the Lake of the Ozarks. I wouldn't be doing any of this kind of stuff, you know. I would never have been in the men's movement. I would never have been in, in Nomas. I would never have done anything. I probably would have been happily married, been raised a whole different way. I just, I, I often thought I'm, I'm a loner and I really like, I call myself a hermit, which is a male hermit. <laughs> and, and, and this place is Wildwood Hermitage. Uh, and it's got a website, wildwoodhermitage.com. Um, but uh, the, this pandemic works beautifully for me because I really don't like people. And uh, I grew up in a room in, it was sort of like a sunroom. And all I remember is I spent 
all my days in that room. And I didn't have a desk. And that's why I've always had a curve on my back. It's because I'd lay in bed and read. You know, as little as I read, I stopped reading at eight. I stopped memorizing at eight. What happened at eight? My um, stepmother. I was Northern or Northern uh, Presbyterian, Southern Presbyterian, and uh, very middle class, etc. And uh, when my stepmother came along, she was evangelical, and she played the organ at a evangelical church in Kansas City who thinks to this day that they, their little church, is the only word. Nobody else has the word. And their word was spare the rod, spoil the child. And I remember every summer, they had a summer school, and we learned Bible verses. And I remember when I was eight, uh, I really wanted this coloring book. And that's what they gave out for a good performance. And I blew my lines. I blew my Bible verses and I didn't get my coloring. And I have had one hell of a trouble. And I've taken reading courses, speed reading. I get sleepy. I, I got I sleepy working through this. You know, it took me three times to get what, what little changes I've got on here. Um, and I've got a document that I'm supposed to review that I'm long past due. It's like 200 uh, actions in suicide prevention that we're trying to give to the state. And boy, I'm trying to decide and I go out, you know, but I still can't memorize. I have to do my speeches. Now I can do extemporaneous pretty well, but I miss a lot of points. So if there's something that I've limited on three minutes at a board of commissioners meeting, I got to read it. Uh, so anyway. Okay. So, um, so to finish up with the uh, Justin Sterling, uh, what's the unhealthy, to me it's unhealthy that what? Um, I, uh, I, I don't think he would use the term uh, anti-feminist, but that's sure the feeling that I got. And I had been to a couple of the trainings and if a guy supports women, he gets booed. And um, uh, so it just feels like it's old, old school men's work. Uh, worse than Bly. Bly was, had some pretty good stuff, but he had this competition stuff, men competing against either each other in this whole contest of seeing how, having each other shame each other and see who wins, you know? What? And, yeah. We go to the five day, five day conferences at uh, 
Mendocino. And there were th three things you could do. You could do the, the putting down each other, or you could do the Indian thing where you, you're laying on your back and you hook a leg and you try to, it's like uh, arm wrestling, but it's leg wrestling. And I forget the other one, but, but all three of them were around male dominance to me, you know? And then what he- What was he trying to do? What was the point of insulting each other? So you'd be strong or something? Uh, draining the swamp. And uh, that whole- um, uh, Wild men. Wild men, yeah. Uh, John, what did they, what was that guy? Iron John. Iron John. Well, that was his book, Bly's book. Yeah. Yeah. And Mark, somebody out of, uh, of um, uh, Austin uh, did a wild men gathering down there. And I was in there. Uh, and uh, that really upset Bly. And that was right when his book was coming out, that kind of thing. He destroyed the men's movement. He singly destroyed the men's movement. How so? He communicated to all of us and John Lee and, and the wild men down in there and the sacred circle men down there in Austin, which was the gay side of of the wild men movement to um, lay back in promoting our work for uh, X number of periods of time so that he could introduce his book. And he said it would include all of us, et cetera, et cetera. And it didn't. And he wanted to be talked off, top dog. And then he went on his tours and he was doing the gatherings like Mendocino gatherings and all over the country and taking over as the, the, the person that the press goes to, to know about the men's movement. And it basically ended. John Lee got out of the stuff, the guys down Austin got out of it, sacred. Everybody that I know, the guys that, that did groups here uh, got out of that and went to relationship work. And that's where I'm upset is that men, except for New Warrior, are not doing their own work. They're doing relationship work. Mm. Women can't benefit from that and men can't, women can't benefit it until they do their work because they did their work 15 years ago. And now they've sort of laid back. Some of them are still working, but you don't see women's, women's groups like you did yeah. 20 years ago. They're not doing the work. And so they're not, they're not able to, they're not prepared and able to handle men coming out of the Mankind Project because these men are feeling and they're digging deeper and Deborah, somebody wrote a book, Kingman, uh, about men and about um, 
uh, men, women getting men to therapy to work on the relationship. Men wouldn't be doing it on their own. And so she wrote this book and she said, um, it was really interesting because it would go with a lot of the women. It would go well for six months, a year, something like that. And they had him back in therapy, wondering how to get him back to the way he was. Because <laughs> they can't deal with the men's feelings. They, they can't deal with grief, particularly. Get over it. The men, the, the women would get to, oh, get over it. You know, I've, I've heard you, you're whining and you're crying and, you know, you're sorry about your dog and all this kind of stuff. And man up. You know, get them back to the way they were so wow. I can deal with it instead of understanding how to deal with men in their feelings. Wow. We all got them. We just don't show them because it's not safe to show them. It's okay. getting safer. It's getting safer. More men are football and all are crying and there's very few of the sports people are putting them down for it. You know, and they're showing up for their wife and missing a game that cost them two or three hundred thousand uh, dollars to be with their wife when the kid gets born. Now, not a lot of them, but some of them are, and they're not getting put down for it anymore. But right. Five years ago, different story. Um, one of the guys that I talked to who's been in men's group and men's gatherings in California for eight years said the only time men would cry was when their dogs died. They, they would mostly talk about relationships. They cry about their dogs. Does that resonate with you? Yeah. <laughs> Why? What's that about? Because we've been we've been trained. You know, I, one of the things I on my last day in my workshop. I played Jeff Morgan's uh, Being a Man or something like that, where he talks about the war and dying and all that. What, how to be a man and how we really have been abused and been, been basically trained from the day we were born to kill. Well, this is what I, this is what I ask women. After I play that and talk a little about how, uh, how our fathers were trained, and we were too, is I ask you a question as a woman. How would it feel to be trained from the day you were born to kill other women? Terrible. That hits, particularly after we worked for three and a half days on really getting in touch with some good things about the father. Or, or gotten in touch with getting the damage, as much of the damage out, um, uh, and then really on Sunday morning, talking about their fathers and how me talking to them, they've talked to me several times as their father, speaking to the father and what they'd wanted, or et cetera, et cetera. But this is me talking to them about the dad's experience and how men have been trained to be, how boys have been trained to be men in this culture. 
And then I, near the end of that, I put that on them. And they, I haven't found anybody that, that uh, uh, would do very well with that. Yeah. And that is truly how we've been trained. And to expect, ah, I, I got something that I just made. And I made it because in Curry County, we're the number one county for the last four weeks in transmissions for 100,000 people. For COVID. And, yeah, for COVID. And our commissioners have vowed not to, not to implement any mandate, mask or mandate uh, vaccines. Or schools. That, that come down for anybody. That in, in office buildings, in businesses, closing down restaurants. This is in Portland? Like no, this is Curry County. What's, the, big, what's the biggest city? Uh, well, um, Ashland, probably two and a half hours away. So I did, I did this shirt and it doesn't show the whole thing, but this is how men feel. And Shaft was it? The men's rights, heavy men's rights guy that the other side of the coin. Uh, anyway, I'm expendable. Mm. And that's what men are. We're expendable to the, the government. We're, you know, it doesn't matter how many. That, that's this whole thing about the COVID. It doesn't matter how many men die. It doesn't matter to wear the mask. And, and it's men that are doing that to men. It's and true. Women are more likely to get the vaccine and wear masks and stuff than men. Well, it's interesting. By I've gone to three board school board meetings now, and boy, are those women radical. They came into the about I'd say twelve or thirteen adults with at least seven kids under five years old, came in, invaded the school board meeting up at Gold Beach without any masks on. And it was the school had mandated masks in there and for classes and everything. And they were, there was one guy that was outspoken, pretty strong, but there were three women there that were just yelling and I have a right and I don't, I'm not going to vaccinate my kid and I'm not going to make a mask and you better have my kid in your classroom. And there was one woman and I talked to the superintendent about it. And of course he noticed too, that was really nice, really good is one of those people that you want to have a dialogue, a sane dialogue with, you know, and she was still very adamant, but she wasn't the yeller, the interrupter, the, um, you know, like, I don't know if you watched any school board meetings over the internet, but there are a lot of them where this group wants their children not to be masked. And here you're having kids die now. Delta's 
taking on kids. Yeah, that's them with their hearts. You know, it's giving them, it looks like potential heart problems is what Delta is doing that the other ones aren't. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And it's getting, of course, it's getting uh, um, breakthrough kids. Both my granddaughter and my niece got it. Yeah, I have friends who got double vaccinated. They have COVID, but thank God it's light. Ninety percent so, of the people in the hospitals are not vaccinated. Oh, right. Right. Okay, let's look for some more red. Um, I'm working on suicide in the state of Oregon. More trans women are killed, commit suicide than cisgender people. That's uh, no problem. Right. Well, you've got. Let's go by paragraph. Okay. Uh, the next paragraph was that the pre premise keepers have died out. Except, did I say in there that they're coming back? Well, I you said it just now, and I I typed oh. it. Okay, good. And then I'm working on suicidality in state Oregon as four times more trans women are killed and committed than um, than uh, non-binary or than binary. Well, do you mean men and women? I'm talking trans women. Yeah. Which more, is the MAB. It, it would make more sense to say than, um, than cis women. No, I think. No, no. They're a man. They were born a man. Right. My point is I'm talking just trans, the title trans women, which is a male born and. Right. I know. Okay, so trans women were enculturated with what it is to be a man and have gone, not taken that, not wanting to take that on, but that was the message that they always got until they actually transferred. And that's what I'm, and it's trans women that are at a higher rate. Oh shit. I don't give a comparison on trans men because I didn't, I, I let me check that. I, I'm pretty sure that it's trans women are four times more likely die by suicide than men. Men or trans men? No, not trans men. Just men. Men. Okay. We're, yeah, this is totally about men. Cis men. Cis men, no. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I don't know if, I would say yes. Okay. That, that makes sense, but we can check that. Um, I think uh, that trans men have a lower rate than that. And it seems like it's two, two times more. That would be interesting to know. Yeah. 
I I think that would be a pretty easy fact to pull up with uh, Lisa. Yeah, I I interviewed a trans couple and one of them works with trans groups, so I can ask him easy. Okay. Okay. So um, Bill Caffey. Oh, that's the the K guy. Yeah. Okay. Or, okay. Or, I I I know how to spell Kathy now. It's yeah. Bill Kalf. Yeah, I know. I. He wrote a book. Um, did you find the book? No. Um, a I think it's a circle of men. Um, well, you say Clay Boykin wrote Circles of Men. Clyde Henry wrote the Men's Group Manual. Uh, I think I looked it up on Amazon and that's what I found. Well, I've got it. Um, it's Jed, J-E-D, Diamond. I've got it on my website. Um, because, um, in fact, I've got a, a, a uh, just uh, men's group books. Uh, and uh, on my website, I think I, I believe that Bill Calf wrote a circle of men. We can check that easy enough. Yeah, it is. And a good friend wrote a men's group book. Uh, a men's group with him, been in it for 40 years. Uh, my, my name's really going to hell. Well, the beauty is it's easy to check. Yeah, it would be. I'll come back to that. Um, let's see. And then I'm all the way down. Next page. Yeah, I'm on page six in mine. I'm not paginated. Okay. Um, look for. Okay. Do now, you have? I've got some comments on the top of this page that says, what kind of ceremony or ritual creates the initiation? Okay, great. Okay. Um, down at the fourth line, the most difficult people in my workshops were therapists. Yeah. Because many of them know how anger, let's see, many of them we're thinking about the process and how this is going to lead to an ang anger work. And I can't let anybody know how angry I am. I, I just, there's a little more emphasis than I'm. How angry I'm? I am. I, yeah, I got it. Okay. That's all there. Down in the next one, the mind works like peyote or um, ayahuasca. Yeah, it is um, ayahuasca. Peyote is ayahuasca? No, no. Um, in fact, a shaman from Peru 
gave me the bottle that they put it in to get it through customs. I've got it on my desk here. <laughs> Beautiful bottle. Uh, and uh, so, but it's ayahuasca. Well, the mind works like peyote and ayahuasca. What do we, how do we want to change that? No. Uh, Oh, then you can do. Okay. All these cultures I've seen. I, I would say maybe just work in. Um, through the use of peyote or ayahuasca. I've never seen it spelled. I'll check it then. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you said mind journey, ayahuasca. So, well, no, the one in Portland was uh, ayahuasca journey. Okay. And the only, only two hallucinogenics I've ever used are ayahuasca and with a, uh, a Peruvian medicine man and uh, peyote with a Navajo medicine man. And what, <clears throat> what did you, did it expand your? A little. Visions? A little, not much. My sister got sick on it. Yeah, it's supposed to make you really throw up. Well, not for a lot of people. Uh, a lot of it's just um, uh, the the mind trip. But and I worked with Tom uh, Pinkson, and who's a therapist in Moran. And he would do the uh, 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 peyote ceremonies up at Harbin all night long. And I actually took the West that he usually ran so he could do the sacrament. And I did very well and got commended by, the, by Eagle Man, who was the medicine man that was there and for handling one of the women that uh, really went semi-psychotic. Um, and he gave me, he offered me, he rolled out a, a piece of uh, rawhide with eagle feathers in it. And he offered me an eagle feather, which is illegal for me to have, but I took it anyway. And he said, Take another. And uh, the uh, and I've written some stuff about two feathers, meaning the uh, the child that I lost the first pregnancy that I lost to a miscarriage and a second pregnancy before my wife that I lost to um, stillborn. Wait, these are with, not with Barbara? 
Yeah. Wait. These are my three pregnancies. With Barbara. No, no, no. The the first pregnancy was the first girl I ever had sex with. And I was 16, she was 13, and that's how you dated back then. Three or four years. You don't weren't allowed to date. You couldn't get a 16-year-old girl to go out with you. Even football players. They always went out with the or the seniors and juniors. Anyway, that happened. Uh, I came out of, uh, no, I was in college my sophomore year and I got a girlfriend pregnant and uh, some way I guess convinced her that uh, she didn't want to have an abortion. And, uh, I, and I'm not proud of this at all, uh, convinced her that my dad would be really upset and be sending me to college and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it wasn't until probably 50, and she left, she left town. And it was probably 15 or 20 years later, I took a workshop with Michael Mead, and, and we split up the men and the women. And um, we got to talking about pregnancies that we'd had. And that's the first time I think I'd thought about that. And that drew me to go back to Kansas City and find this woman. And my sister lived in Kansas City. Um, and, and I don't want to go through it. I mean, I'd be happy to, but just synchronicity after synchronicity after synchronicity in a little over a day's time, I made contact with her. And, um, and she told me the story that um, uh, she was, she went to a Catholic girls school her parents didn't know, her sister knew. And that's how I ended up finding out about her because her sister was a, a state rep in the Kansas legislature. And uh, she knew the whole story. But I, I was just, I was trying to find the, the girl that I danced with <laughs> back then because I knew what had happened. Um, and she, um, and I found her and she went to a Catholic girls school in, or, yeah, school in uh, Boise, Idaho. And the, the nuns were trying to convince her to give up the child. And she spent the last two weeks crying. And, um, and uh, lost the child somewhere in that period of time but it was actually born uh, or left her body like eight to 10 days after she wow. actually died. Wow. And so I put a, in, in Boise, I looked there, was cemeteries and there was one that were had county burials. And there were over 400 graves there 
and there was only two stones on any of them. And I found out where Janet Lynn Bedford, Janet Bedford Clay was buried. I asked uh, the mother if Janet Lynn is the name the mother gave. And uh, I asked if uh, I could put in a stone and make it Janet Lynn ben Bedford Clay. And it's got two little hands like they're reaching up and being held. Aww. And a heart because she was born in passion. I mean, she was conceived in passion. Uh, a lot of other stuff didn't go along with it. And then when the stone was ready, Natalie, I asked Natalie to join me and uh, she was in classes at, at Portland State or Portland U, I, the one in, in Portland to join me during finals and drive to, to Boise and put the stone there. And the caveat here is one of the eagle feathers went under the stone. And I saved the other eagle feather for my daughter. Mm. How sweet. So, mm. and, and I really feel good about that. Uh, there are some potential complications that uh, Sue Bedford had two other boys, and one of them was. Uh, autistic and the other one had physical heart problems uh, and and uh, I really was concerned I've got oh no she only told me I was in I was wanting to get together and talk and remember our time out at out of the island and how your dad had to come out the next morning and with his friends and push their car out of the mud, all that kind of stuff. And on the phone, she told me about her son, two sons. And uh, and we hadn't talked about the abortion, I mean, the uh, death or anything. And I asked her to get together for lunch the next day. And she wanted you know, she wouldn't talk and she wouldn't give me any information that she was the woman that I had gotten pregnant. Her her sister wouldn't give me any information. I was just wanting to find out about this uh, girl that I used to date that that uh, was a great West Coast swing dancer and we won a lot of contests. And, and I thought she was Native American, and I had a hard time finding her in the yearbook. And realized she was actually a year older than I was. Um, so, but there were a lot of little little pieces that brought that brought that again. We had lunch, and then she determined that, that I was safe to talk about. And so I've gone out, and I've actually had a woman every April twenty sixth 
go out to the gravesite and clean it up and plant daisies. And then I, I've lost touch with Sue Bedford, but I have a picture taken every year uh, with the, the gravesite. That's beautiful. Anyway, I took a responsibility for something that I was, you know, and growing up as a boy and a man, just follow the crowd. Um, okay, let's see. I, Jen, why is today super? Uh, that's no problem. Where are you? It, it seems like. Where, where are you that you want me to change? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I see. The next thing I see is it seems like the men's movement is pretty quiet. Yeah, yeah. There's, oh, I don't know his, I don't remember his work. But it was. Uh, Dan, do you mean Daniel Ellenberg, who lives yes. in Marin County? Yes. So it's not Ellsberg, it's Ellenberg. Ellenberg, Daniel Ellenberg. Yeah, he, I interviewed him. He and his wife wrote a couple of books. And yeah. He, he did uh, light kind of, he did shadow kind of men's groups. Um, that, that, you're right. He, he's. Uh, the president of uh, Group Unit 5252. Um, creating connection. A fiction doesn't sound right. What? Um, uh, creating connection. And community through courageous conferences, conversations is a Zoom conference. Should I get rid of fiction? Um, Daniel would know that. Okay. Because he he put on that conference. Oh, okay. For uh, the APA or whatever it is. Yeah. So he would know that. Okay. And actually, one of the people in that conference was from Portland. And I got him to join the um, uh, suicide prevention group that we put together this whole thing. Okay. Um, All right. Just because of that connection. Um, and then you say, I don't see many leaders in the men's movement anymore. Stoltenberg is backed out. Mark, the guy down in Austin with Wild Man is backed out, the therapist. No, no, not, not John Stoltenberg didn't do men's, men's gatherings. I'll get rid of that. Um, John Lee. John Lee. Is it L-E-E? -E? Yeah. I don't know him. He's a big, he's done men's conferences for years. He wrote several really nice books. And I've got a bunch of his books on um, on on my website. But it's John Lee. Okay. Uh, yeah, and and I actually you might be able to uh, Google wild men 
Austin, Texas. Okay. And then I, uh, the therapists that were running men's groups are mostly, yeah, I took out in therapy. Yeah. Okay. Now we're going to get to some stuff. So you're saying that the Mankind Project, they're really the biggest, most active men's movement group? They and um, Sterling are the only two I know. There are yeah. men, Every men, man. What? Every man. They're still doing? Now, there are, there are groups, and I actually have a web page on them in my calendar where it says regional groups. When you go to calendar at menstuff.org and then you click on men's groups. Um, no, you click on calendar or events. I forget how I title it. And then go down to, no, you see calendar and it has the months. And then below it has international, national and regional. And click on regional and I probably got 15 to 20 men's gatherings hmm. and like the California men's gathering, etc. Chesapeake, uh, mainly men. I know that's still running. Um, uh, so there's a whole bunch of uh, uh, men's weekend kind of stuff. And every man might be in that. Maybe they're doing a there is, no, there is an authentic AMP, authentic men's, used to be at least, in San Francisco. And they're charging like $1,100 for a weekend to teach men how to pick up women, basically. Uh, what do they call it? Authentic men's what? I think it's authentic men's... Program? Program or process or something like that. It's out of San Francisco. Uh, and very expensive. I did it. There's one thing I really liked about it is on Sunday, they brought in uh, life women, female life trainers. And so they had taught us, the, the men had, in the workshop had taught us ways to approach women so they feel comfortable. And so then we got to, we got different processes where we would approach the women individually uh, and two, always two women so that we have different experiences very possibly. Uh, on, uh, not all women experience all men the same way. Um, and uh, I'm still in touch with one of those women, uh, uh, Nicole Starbuck. What, what did they say? How do you, should you approach women? Like, well, they, just, they just teach you. Like what ways. are the, some ideas? Well, it's basically not how and not do it how you're doing it, probably. Uh, too aggressive, uh, manipulative. I, I don't remember the workshop, it was probably 20 years ago. But um, I just remember how uh, I, the two women that I had on this one 
if they felt safe on me approaching them. One was just really back off. And the other one didn't have that at all. She felt comfortable with it. So the man gets feedback on the way they talk, uh, what, what really turns women against them, etc. Uh, Starbuck was a, uh, a soloist for the San Francisco Ballet. Oh, wow. And we did something we weren't supposed to do. Uh-oh. We weren't supposed to get involved for over six months. And uh, in our closing time together, um, she really broke down because I said something about fathers or something. Like that. And, uh, and I, I said, uh, and she was starting to hold it back. And I said, no, don't be in the female. I had a lot of experience and father wound around that. And then ended up holding her for probably 10 minutes. And, uh, so we weren't supposed to connect, <laughs> but it was agreeable. <laughs> well, it's and mutual. I, That's good. Same time next year, except I haven't been down there for a couple of years. But I'm sure um, when I call, we'll get together. It was magical. <laughs> um, but I lived up here too, so it, it was not. I I go down like once a month, but that's not. My relationship in Montreal is over 20, over 40 years now. Wow. We don't see each other a lot. We talk every now and then. Uh, but uh, Nicole is something like that. But still, it doesn't. I'm 81 years old. And I can't bother with relationships. Too much commitment. Do you see anything else okay. in this vicinity? Now, now uh, this one, we got a bunch. Um, what have you seen at the current issues that men talk about in that? Uh, my group of 11, there is. Um, Remind me to look it up. I think there's seven of them. So I just, and Daniel's in that group. And the guy that wrote a book that I can't, George, uh, T George Taylor, he and his wife do stuff out at uh, uh, Stone, Fairfax, a meditation place at one of the Gurus. You mean Epsilon? No, no, in Marin. Um, anyway, it's, I think it's seven. Are all therapists except, I wouldn't use the word but. Okay. Right now, we meet quarterly. And talk about what's going on in our lives and we're exploring blah blah blah. Now, Jed Diamond's group, and it's probably been 40 years also, going on. I took up Alan out of there in the Willits 
California area and many of the Mankind Project Integration, MKP, M, you know, okay, Mankind Project Integration Groups uh, were going on. Okay, he's, they started in 85. Uh, I I would almost bet, and I think I think Jed's group's probably forty years. Um, I would expect some of the groups that, particularly the early groups, uh, probably started around eighty-five, and and Bill might know this. Um, how long some of these groups, I'm sure, I would bet Bill knows there's somebody with a record out there, some group that's been meeting since almost the time they took the training, which was 1985. So it's definitely more than 20 or 30 years. I've been in Oregon for 20 years. And I took, uh, I took the new warrior training adventure is what they call it. Mankind, Mankind Project is the name of the organization. I know. Okay. Um, did, did, is Shepard still in your group? Because um, he seems like he's having problems. Uh, he, he hasn't been in the group probably for, he, I don't know that he was ever really in the group. He was the one that, uh, did the salons at his house. And we, all of us met there. And that's how that sort of the, his salon was sort of the catalyst for us to get together. Cause all of us, and I think uh, Lee Munoir was in the group early on. Stephen Kessler was early on. Um, but uh, it, it came down to seven, which um, I, I've got it. I've got, I can give you the, the names. <laughs> um, anyway, that, that takes care of that piece. Um, my view is that about 10 next paragraph, 10 years ago, men started moving away, started moving rather than going. Uh, Harville Hendricks and, did you look up Le Levy? He and no. his wife. There's so many Levies. Uh, well, it's Marin. Uh, Harville Hendricks. If, um, if I saw, saw it, I'm pretty sure I remember. Um, couples work, we did clearing, clearing the air between women and men. And I capitalized each one of those words, except the between and and. Clearing the air, that's all that is capitalized? Clearing. Um, okay. 
as the work we did in cap clearing, cap air, cap women, cap men. What about between? I don't think so. Well, yeah, you have to. Do you? Okay. And then I added no couples. Couples okay. were not allowed. You had to make a contract that you wouldn't be sexual. You wouldn't be develop a relationship. And this came from reevaluation counseling. Yeah. You committed that you would never be develop a, any relation, any deeper relationship with your counselor, co-counselor than you had when you first started co-counseling. You didn't even go to birthday parties, anniversaries, nothing. You kept that relationship exactly as you had it before you started co-counseling with them. So that was the whole part of the concept in uh, this. And it was also so it got to a really deeper level of not placating and not, you know, trying to impress each other to get, get them in bed uh, so we could get deeper. Anyway, that's that. Then I've got some notes down here at the bottom. Uh, go back and I don't know what my word is in cultural change it's cultural change cultural change is needed like oh I, I just Julia Roberts that's Wait, where are you? I'm no, I'm I'm done with the type. I'm giving you the notes that I have at the bottom. Okay. Uh, and I think I've talked about most of this, maybe. Um, I'm talking about the need for a cultural change on how, and I think this is preeminent, how men, how boys are taught to be men. Yeah. Uh, like uh, Julia, Julia, oh, I put Julia Roberts in and then a slash for the movie and then above, I wrote, go back and watch. So I couldn't figure out what the go back and watch was for. And it's, just, it's a sentence below. Uh, that represents how women Wait, what's the name of the movie? Uh, I think it's Smiling Madonna. Julia, and she's an art teacher at Wellesley. And Wellesley got really upset about the, how they were portrayed. But I think it was pretty truthful. And I, what did it have to do with men? Okay. It's an example of how cultural change and how a girl was being raised and the cultural change needed to where she is today or how girls are being raised today to be women, how, how to be a woman. And as you see, the young women 
they don't understand feminism because they didn't have most of those things. They, they don't have any comprehension. Yeah, that movie was in the 1950s or something. Yeah. No, it, the, the movie that I'm talking about with Julia Roberts was 2002 or three. But, but the setting was yeah, in the 50s. The, the setting was probably in the, the, yeah, the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Um, and so I'm saying that that is a reference point on how I see the possibility of changing the culture in the raising of boys, how to be a man. And that's what's needed. And I think it's very possible. I think it's taken a, a back step in the last four years. With Why? Trump. Oh, because of Trump. Trump and teaching men it's okay to beat up, grab pussy, and do anything you want with women or minorities. Yeah. Um, what society is training, what it is, how to be a woman. Okay, this is all the same. Society's expectation of how to be a woman. Mona Lisa smiles. Oh yeah, right. Um, uh, 2003. Yeah. That's all I've got. You got any, anything else that you need on that? Or on this, or I know I got a couple of pictures and I looked just before we went on and he hadn't emailed them to me yet. Okay, uh, there's no huge hurry. So don't feel pressured. Okay. Um, 